Cutting through an overload of information to get to the heart of the story. This is The Point. Welcome to The Point, an opinion show coming to you from Beijing. I'm Li Xin. The United Nations General Assembly held an emergency special session on Thursday on the Israel-Palestine crisis, and the session will continue on Friday. It is expected to vote on Friday on a Jordanian-backed draft resolution on the crisis. UN General Assembly President called for quote-unquote an immediate and unconditional humanitarian ceasefire and the opening of eight corridors to save lives. Representatives from Palestine, Israel, each made powerful speeches consecutively, while Jordan, speaking on behalf of the Arab group, said it will table a resolution to quote-unquote make a stand for peace. The meeting came amid continuing deadlock at the UN Security Council over the conflict, which is uh, raging into its third week, and the human cost has been staggering. According to UN numbers, the Gaza Strip has borne witness to a devastating toll on its children, with a reported 2,360 fatalities and a reported 5,364 injuries due to unrelenting attacks and more than 400 children are reportedly either killed or injured daily. Additionally, more than 30 Israeli children have uh, reportedly lost their lives and dozens remain in captivity within the Gaza Strip. Why has it been so difficult to reach an international consensus? How to break the unending spiral of hate and violence. I'm pleased to be joined in Beijing by Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Suzhou University, and Professor Rick Dunham, Co-Director of the Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. I want to go through the main points or the main messages that were orated at the UN General Assembly with you gentlemen. And first we start according to the General Assembly speaking orders with the Palestine representative. Let's take a listen to this first. 7,000 Palestinians have been killed by Israel in the last almost three weeks. 70% of all those killed are women and children. Almost all killed are civilians. Is this the war some of you are defending? So let me go to uh, Victor there. Um, the message is very grave, of course. Um, but Victor, why do you think such an emergency session was needed and that uh, Palestine was given the first <laughs> opportunity to speak? Thank you very much for having me. I think the unprecedented human tragedy is unfolding, involving the fate of the Palestinian people at the hands of the Israeli forces. Now, since the United Nations Security Council is deadlocked right now without any ability of adopting a resolution one way or another, it's left to the United Nations General Assembly to do the right thing, at least symbolically, to uh, set the record straight. I would not be surprised if eventually three quarters of the members of the United Nations, that's roughly about 150 nations, will join in this resolution calling for immediate ceasefire. That means the people, mankind in the whole world, will be faced with this very important moment of urging to do the right thing, that is to cease the fire against the civilians. Now, we all want to condemn terrorism of any color and shape, of course, 
And we all want to make sure that the legitimate rights of the Israelis, the Jewish people, will be fully protected. However, to protect the legitimate rights of the Israelis, the Jewish people, does not constitute a blank check to violate the legitimate rights of the Palestinian people. And I think mankind as a whole will be able to tell the right from the wrong and will urge the Israelis to do the right thing, that is, to protect the innocent people, especially women and children, in Gaza, rather than bombing them to ashes. Let's take a listen to what the Israeli representative had to say at the General Assembly debate, right here. Our goal is to completely eradicate Hamas's capabilities, and we will use every mean at our disposal to accomplish this. Not for revenge, no. Not for retaliation, no. But to ensure that such depravity, such atrocities, never occurs again. So, um, Professor Dunham, let me go to you. What is your take on the uh, Israeli response and uh, their perspective that this is not about revenge, this is to prevent atrocities from happening ever again? I think that uh, President Biden of the United States warned uh, Israel that uh, revenge would be a terrible motive right now. Uh, and the United States did some of that after the attacks of 9-11 and made some serious mistakes. But I think there are three things that must happen for us to get any kind of long-term stability in the Middle East. One is, as the Israeli representative said, the eradication of the terrorist group Hamas so that they do not have any, any power at all for future attacks or for trying to control Gaza. The second is there has to be a Palestinian state where Palestinians live in freedom and free from fear. The third is that all Arabs and Muslims must agree forever that Israel has a right to exist in that land that was once called Palestine under the British mandate. And the problem is all of those things. And uh, I do not see how we get to uh, eradicating Hamas without tens of thousands of innocent civilians being killed. If there's anything that we need to do, that's what we need to work on. The first thing we can do is have a pause in the killing to try to bring aid to innocent civilians in Gaza. I think that's something that everyone should be able to agree with. I don't know why it hasn't happened. Yeah, exactly. Rick, do you have an answer, a possible answer as to why it hasn't happened, that the agreement to stop the violence temporarily or let the civilians have shelter or evacuate if you want to eradicate terrorists? Well, let me try to explain it. This is mm. and not, not endorsing it. The, my explanation is what the Israelis are saying, which is that the danger of having unlimited aid is that it is used by Hamas for war and terror and not for the civilians. But I, I really think that Egypt, the United States, and other nations must figure out a way to get much, much more aid to the innocent civilians and figure out how to at least pause some of the killing, some of the bombing, uh, to allow more people to, uh, to, to get aid to save lives.
Victor, that seems to be the shared goal of uh, the majority of countries in the world. And for instance, Jordan, who is tabling this draft resolution in the hope of not to be overturned or vetoed. Um, fortunately, there is no such thing as a veto at the General Assembly meeting. Uh, and yet it seems to have been difficult. Exactly what's preventing a ceasefire? First of all, I don't think a resolution uh, calling for ceasefire to be adopted by the United Nations General Assembly is a mission impossible. It will happen, in my best judgment. Secondly, whether Israeli government will give heed to that resolution, that's highly unlikely. And I think the Israeli government need to acknowledge several things. That is, the two-state solution is the only viable solution to solve the Palestinian-Israeli uh, conflict. Now. If the Israeli government keeps bombing out Gaza to kill innocent people in the process for whatever the uh, real purpose, it will really create eternal fate among the Palestinian people and the Arab people and many other people in the world. Because what they are doing is against international law, is collective punishment against the millions of the Palestinian people most of whom are innocent people. They have nothing to do with the terrorist activities committed by Hamas, for example. Uh, therefore, this is not the good. This is not in the real conscience of things. And I don't think it is in the fundamental good of the Jewish people, of the Israeli people for the long term. Therefore, I think the international community need to rise up to the occasion to call for the ceasefire and to make it absolutely known to the Israeli government that if they continue to do the wrong thing, to commit crimes against humanity, they will be held responsible eventually. Because they should not use the legitimate rights of the, of the Israeli people as an excuse to kill the innocent people in Gaza, Let's to kill the mothers and children among the Palestinian people. This no, is not going to be tolerated, mm -hmm. not only by the Arab people, by the Chinese people, by people in the peace-loving countries, but also by the people in the Western Dr. countries, yeah. especially in the United States. Dr. Dunham, um, help us understand why Israel is so adamant seeing the rising protest around the world against what the Israeli government is doing. Well, it believes that this is an existential moment. Uh, not only the uh, massacre of more Jews in uh, a single day than any day, uh, since the end of the Holocaust and the defeat of Hitler, uh, but the uh, the threat uh, to existential threat to the Is continued existence of Israel. Well, that you, but you asked me why why they're saying it. Now let's go to the second second question. The answer is I do believe that the current government, at least the the pre unity government of Netanyahu, did not want to have a solution, a two state solution. And I do believe that the Israelis have to look at a bigger picture if we're going to solve this. Otherwise, it will just lead to more deaths in Gaza, uh, more deaths in Israel, and uh, charges of crimes against humanity and, and war crimes. I mean, there is no way to eliminate Hamas without killing tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of innocent people. There has to be a way out of out of this, but I think that the Israeli government has to reconceptualize the situation. I don't know if it is possible for that government, the way it is constituted, 
to do so. It yeah. may just self-destruct in that if, if it's forced. Well, hopefully, hopefully the Jordanian-backed resolution will get uh, some serious consideration. I just want to wrap up with this soundbite from the Jordanian representative speaking on behalf of the Arab group. Let's listen in. We care about all lives, about all civilians, Muslims, Christians, Palestinians, Jews, Israelis, all lives. Don't let them tell you otherwise. I think the applauses we're hearing from the participants who were at the meeting uh, explains a lot. We have to leave it there. Time is really running out. Many thanks to my guest, Victor Gao, Chair Professor at Sutro University, and Professor Rick Dunham, Co-Director of the Global Business Journalism Program at Tsinghua University. When we come back, Governor of the U.S. State of California, Gavin Newsom, claimed that U.S.-China cooperation is not a zero-sum game during his trip to China. Was he speaking on behalf of California? himself or the United States federal government. Right after this short break, we'll talk about it. 2,500 years ago, an old man rode on his buffalo and headed west of China. Before he vanished into the wild, he left behind a book of 5,000 words, which for the next two and a half millennia would have shaped the Chinese way of thinking. Subscribe to the sayings of Lao Tzu and find out why generals with wisdom yield after winning the ultimate battle and how staying behind just might help you get ahead of others. The sayings of Lao Tzu is available on all major podcast platforms. Making room for all opinions and seeing events from more than one side. This is The Point. U.S.-China cooperation is not a zero-sum game. Governor of the U.S. state of California, Gavin Newsom, said this during his ongoing week-long trip to China. On Wednesday, he was received by Chinese President Xi Jinping, who recalled his first-ever stop in the U.S. in the state of California, San Francisco, 38 years ago. Meanwhile, China's top diplomat Wang Yi is on a three-day visit to the United States at the invitation of U.S. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. These visits are seen as signals of potential thaws in relations which uh, have sinked to historical lows in recent years. And these visits come ahead of a highly anticipated summit of Asia-Pacific leaders to be held in San Francisco in November. So what are the messages that have been sent? What could a working relationship between the world's two largest economies and players mean for other regions in the world? I'm pleased to be joined from Hong Kong by Lu Xiang, Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences, and from Philadelphia, U.S., by Nathan Mabubi, Director of the Penn Project on the Future of U.S.-China Relations at the University of Pennsylvania. Gentlemen, welcome to The Point. So I want to recall some numbers that have been uh, highlighted by Chinese President Xi Jinping during his meeting with visiting Governor Newsom. Um, President Xi Jinping mentioned of course, his first ever stop in the United States, which I will be going hopefully. And he recorded four numbers, two, three, four, five, in his meeting with uh, Governor Newsom. He said, and I explain, China and the United States are the world's two largest economies. Together, they account for more than one third of the global economy and nearly one-fourth of the world's population, and bilateral trade accounts to about one-fifth of the global 
total. So, Mr. Liu, how much does he want to say about the importance China attaches to relations with the United States? Oh well, uh, what uh, President Xi told uh, Governor Newsom is that uh, the U.S. and China are the uh, the both countries are the la largest two economies in the world, and uh, we know that uh, the country in the third place is far behind. That has uh, we we have never seen this situation, this kind of uh, economic ranking in the world in the world history. So today. President Xi points to the fact that cooperation, economic cooperation between our two countries are not only beneficial to our two countries, but also to the world. So negatively speaking, if we don't cooperate, we have a negative impact, a big negative impact mm -hmm. on the world economy. Mm -hmm. And if we work together, we can contribute a lot to yeah. the world economy. Well, it seems that this message is being reciprocated by the United States by this trip through this trip. And Nathan, how do you see it? Uh, it's a high-profile U.S. politician, uh, a prominent figure in the Democratic Party, the governor of the largest uh, economy in the United States, and he's sending out some very positive messages. And his trip, he's been in China alone, uh, is already a big thing. Yeah, so I think that there's a lot uh, with respect to Governor Newsom's visit that is specific to California. And for example, the ways in which the climate crisis uh, particularly impact and are acknowledged in the politics of California um, have something to do with the trip. I think in general, in the last few years where there's been so much tension between the US and China at sort of the national government to government level, there's always been some interest in what the dynamics were at the subnational level. And uh, I think that California is not the only state that is potentially uh, looking at China through a different lens than we see to be predominant in Washington. All of that said, I still tend to think of this trip within the parameters of uh, these other visits by uh, U.S. federal government officials uh, mm -hmm. over the course of the past few months, which all together reflect that the Biden administration has been trying very hard to stabilize relations with China, to take advantage of this particular window of time where there are not any new intervening factors which would make the relationship more tense to try to introduce some stability. And I think that the Chinese side has tended to reciprocate, um, both in terms of the Why do you reception. think the United States is motivated to stabilize the relationship now? You know, I think probably because there are adults in the room. And um, adults would recognize that having these two large economies be in a state of ongoing hostility all the time is not particularly smart. And so just from that standpoint, it makes sense to try to stabilize relations to the extent that's possible. That's not to say that we're going to resolve all of the issues that mm -hmm. we have seen in yeah. recent years uh, confront the two countries. But perhaps this particular moment is one in which we can at least put a floor yeah. on the 
negative spiral that has dominated all of our attention for the past few years. Yeah, Mr. Liu, what is uh, your observation? Because we see on the Chinese side the reaction or the attitude towards the United States has been rather consistent, is reactive, and it has always sent the message that China wants to have a stable relationship with the United States. Rather, the United States government, from Trump to Biden, and in the beginning, a couple of years till now, we are seeing quite some change why there are all of a sudden adults in the room, Mr. Liu, if you agree? Yeah, you know that China's uh, position, China's policy towards the United States is consistent and uh, persistent. We, we have never changed our attitude towards the relation, towards a stable and constructive relation with the United States, because we know that the relation, in essence, is complementary, is constructive to is mutually constructive for both countries. Uh, so it's inevitable that China will continue to build a stable and uh, constructive relationship with the At United this States, moment, especially in the eco economic front. Yeah, especially economic front. Well, at this moment, China's top diplomat, uh, Mr. Wang Yi, is visiting the United States, which came as some kind of you know, a surprise visit in very short notice and people are speculating about what this means for the next few weeks. Mr. Liu, what is your interpretation of what's going to happen? What is happening? Okay, there, there is a uh, very deep, uh, deep-rooted uh, implications because since, uh, since uh, June, we have seen uh, a lot of U.S. officials coming to China. Right. And now it's, uh, it's Mr. Wang, it's Foreign Minister Wang's uh, turn to, to go to the United States to wrap up the, uh, the, the uh, to, to have a conclusion of the previous uh, uh, interactions. So now uh, on the one side, he, he is going, he's meant to, uh, meant to uh, discuss with U.S. counterparts to have a conclusion mm -hmm. for the previous uh, interactions. And uh, furthermore, uh, we, uh, we can expect he will discuss uh, with U.S. counterparts about, uh, about a potential uh, meeting between the top official, top leader, uh, uh, top leaders of our two countries uh, in, uh, in the next month. Uh, so, you know, uh, the, the meeting will be, uh, will be in Cambodia. So in return, you, you can see the significance of the uh, but we do not know. But we do not know for sure any such plan, right? Right at this moment, is all kind of speculation. No, no, we don't know. But uh, we can expect that. Okay, okay. Nissan, what is your interpretation of Mr. Wang's visit from 26th to 28th of uh, October, right now, as we speak? I mean, I think the driving factor has been preparation for the meeting between President Xi Jinping and Joe Biden at the APEC meeting in San Francisco. Um, I agree that all the signals are that a meeting is on and that everyone wants to prepare for it as best they can. And I'm sure that's the primary reason. But it so happens that uh, he is visiting uh, Foreign Minister, uh, now also Foreign Minister Wang Yi is visiting at a time of extreme geopolitical tension because right. of the crisis of the Middle East. And I'm sure that that is going to be discussed at length. And so probably the visit was scheduled mostly in advance because of the preparations that need to be taken before the meeting in San Francisco. Okay. But now that he's there, I'm sure they're going to take advantage of it to talk about 
the situation in the Middle East and whether there are ways in which the U.S. and China can work productively together yeah. um, as, as a world community. We hope that there will be some resolution. Well, since we're CGTN, I, I want to make sure that we don't want people to speculate that, you know, because this is being discussed on CGTN, that this is a sign that something is going to happen. We don't have any insider knowledge. So don't take us um, as, on the record saying, you know, that something is going to happen. But I want to ask this question since uh, Nason mentioned it. Uh, could U.S. and China working together or back to work together to a certain degree help resolve some of the hot, hot spot issues in the world that we're seeing, Nason? I would hope so. Um, I think I have always thought that one of the things that could bring the U.S. and China uh, closer together would be recognition that both countries have more in common in hoping for stability in the world than they have difference. And so one would hope that with all of these different crises uh, popping up around the world, it can be an occasion for these two countries mm -hmm. that, again, mostly agree on the need for global stability to, to work together. And this will be another test of it. We have one test in terms of the situation in Russia and Ukraine, and now we have another test in the Middle East. And I'm sure that both uh, uh, Wang Yi and Secretary Blinken and Jake Sullivan will have a lot to talk about in the next couple of days. Mm. Mr. Liu, I want to get your view if you can, but keep that short because I have about one minute left. Um, and I also want to ask you about the new uh, House Speaker in the United States that's just been approved and the implication of his being sworn into office, uh, taking office uh, on U.S.-China relations. Oh, okay, uh, this story, uh, all of a sudden, uh, we, we heard a story and uh, Mr. Johnson uh, got, uh, got to be famous uh, just in a while. Uh, actually, he, he's, he's definitely he's a, a conservative and uh, even you can say he's a radical conservative. But uh, re regarding China, uh, we haven't seen his systematic uh, uh, comments on China. We have seen, we have heard some uh, discreet and uh, sporadic comments uh, relating to China. So it's not a moment for us to make a judgment on his position uh, to, towards China. Now. What about China and the United States working together and helping to facilitate in whatever capacity they can to bring some stability to the geopolitical conflicts we're seeing? Mr. Liu. Yeah, I, you mean... Uh, China and the, the United States having common interests in bringing stability to hotspot issues. Oh yes, yes, yes. Uh, actually, we see the uh, close interactions in the in the recent months, and so uh, I have in the history of uh, of the U.S.-China relation, we have never seen such uh, frequent interactions between our two countries. So it means both sides, at least, have a, rec a common recognition that the relation is important. Okay. It's uh, it's uh, vital to the world economy and. Uh, Stability. We have to leave it there. Many thanks to Lu Xiang and Nathan Mabubi joining us from Hong Kong and Pennsylvania. With that, we are coming to the end of this edition of The Point with me, Lu Xin. As always, you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter using the handle Lu Xin in Beijing. You've got the point. <laughs>